my name is Jason Moon. I'm a reporter at New Hampshire Public Radio. I cover health and politics and a bunch of other stuff the way you do when you work at a small public radio station. Uh, but I also worked on a podcast called Bear Brook. It was a limited run podcast series about an unsolved uh, quadruple murder from New Hampshire that became the the first case to, to see the use of forensic genetic genealogy in a, in a criminal justice context. And if, uh, if you don't know what that is, it's how they caught the Golden State Killer. You probably heard about that. So um, before I worked on Bearbrook, I was doing uh, the kinds of stories you typically hear on a local public radio station, so uh, news spots and features. So my longest story before Bearbrook was probably like six or seven minutes. And in fact, that's kind of the way um, Bearbrook started. So um, back in 2015, I was uh, at NHPR on a fellowship. I had been there for five months. Um, the fellowship was paying me $20,000 a year. And I got assigned to go cover a press conference because I was kind of like low man on the totem pole, right? Uh, there was this press conference about new information, this cold case. I'd never heard of it. I went over there, and I came back, and I filed this spot, and I'm going to make you suffer through it now. <laughs> Senior Assistant Attorney General Benjamin Agate announced the release of new composite images of the four victims that officials hope will make it easier to identify them. Agate also released new information about where the victims, one adult woman and three children, likely lived. These new details are the result of radioisotope testing of the victim's remains. At this point in time, we are almost at our full, if not we are at the final line, of what science can do to help us based upon their remains uh, to identify where they came from and who they were. Uh, so at this point, it really is the public's help that we're looking for. The updated images are more detailed than previous police sketches and take into account the new evidence. The AG is also releasing two maps based on the radioisotope testing, which shows where the victims likely resided. While that includes wide swaths of the Northeast and Midwest, Agati says officials will target their messaging in those areas in hopes that someone will recognize one of the victims. It is going to be monumentous. However, um, it's not impossible. It's just not impossible. Again, not in this day and age. You can find those new composite images of the victims, along with information on how to contact police with any tips, at our website, nhpr.org. For NHPR News, I'm Jason Moon. Oof. Um, I think that was actually a super spot because it's really long for a newscast. Um, so uh, that's how, that was uh, from my, the first reporting I ever did on the story. Um, and I filed this that afternoon. But I also thought that despite what you just heard, the science at that press conference actually was really interesting. And I thought that that maybe could be another story. It was about how they're using isotopes from your bones to tell where you may have lived. And I thought, oh, that could be like an interesting science feature. And maybe I could even spend like seven minutes on that, you know, something really long. Um, so I started to do some reporting on that, uh, thinking that that would be a, a news feature for our newsroom. Uh, but then I started to talk to some of the people who were most... Uh, intimately connected with the case itself and not just this science. And so I ended up talking to this uh, amateur investigator from Maine, this social worker who had been obsessed with the case for like 10 years. And we got on the phone, and then in like the first 10 minutes, she says this. 
One time I went to the Concord, uh, the New Hampshire State Library, and I read the Concord 1984 phone book, every name, every page. It took me 14 hours, it took two days, but, and I was motion sick by the end of every day, like severely motion sick, but it was because I was, there was no city directories that were published for 19. So I was like, who's this woman who is reading the phone book until she's dizzy? Uh, I want to know more about her. Uh, seems like a character I might want to uh, explore. Uh, and then there was this other, there were more people like that. There was this other guy, uh, Ron Montplaisir, who was a retired cop. He was the first guy to discover the, the victims, and he painted such a vivid scene of the town and the, and the community where the crime occurred. You talk about noise complaints, the country music was, was blaring. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I don't like country music. No, I, I do like country music. Uh, but but uh, uh, as, as the alcohol flew, the, the music got louder and louder, and then the calls started to come in. So uh, I had this story about isotopes, but then I also had these people, and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do that in seven minutes, um, flip between the two somehow, narratively connect those ideas, felt like... It would be really tough, uh, and it was, but I tried, and I got it down to seven and a half minutes and sent my editors this script, and they had no idea what to do with it, because um, first of all, it's bad. <laughs> that was the number one reason. Um, but also because there was this obvious like problem with the structure of it, which was that like one half was about, like I'm explaining like protons and neurons, and and why some oxygen atoms are heavier than other atoms. And also, this woman read the phone book for seven hours and got dizzy. And um, a narrative was not uh, evident in, in the combining of those two elements. So uh, thank God we never produced this and aired it. Uh, and we had some discussions about, like, well, what, what are you going to, like, what's next? Like, how are we going to uh, produce or present the reporting that I've been doing on this story. And it was actually a colleague of mine uh, who had a, had a foot in the true crime podcasting world who immediately kind of saw the, the potential for this and was like, Jason, this should be a podcast. Um, keep in mind and remember that I had been there for five months on a fellowship, so no one was like eager to let me do a big limited run series podcast. But uh, it sort of ended in this compromise of like, okay, well, you can work on it as potentially this longer format thing, and we'll see what happens. There was not um, like a launch date set or a team assembled. Uh, it, was, it was really less of like a green lighting of the project and more just like, we won't kill this, and we'll see what happens. And so uh, for the next two and a half years, I kind of worked on it when I could. Um, I, you know, would a lot of nights and weekends uh, doing interviews from my uh, apartment in New Hampshire. Uh, there were like a couple of stretches of several months where I did nothing. I didn't touch it at all. And uh, to be honest, for the majority of this period, I was more convinced than not that this would never, you know, come to fruition, that it would just sort of slowly die in the vine and someday we would just stop talking about it and pretend like it had never happened. But something big happened that uh, changed that, which was, or helped to change that, and that was that a couple years after that first press conference that you just heard about, there was another press conference in the case, because 
unbelievably, after 30-odd years, uh, the case started to um, get solved, like right as I was um, starting to report on it. And so there was another big press conference in 2017 that I went and covered, and, and we learned about uh, basically this serial killer was involved, and there was all these other cases on the West Coast in California that were connected, and it was this sprawling web of narratives, and, and then we learned uh, ultimately how important genetic genealogy was to the story and all the like fascinating implications of that. And, and so because of some of this new information, it created some uh, momentum inside NHPR to be like, okay, maybe we should actually do this. What would it take to actually do this? Uh, we did not know what it would take to actually do this. Um, we, we tried a couple of different uh, models. Uh, the first being, uh, like, Jason, why don't you take a day a week to work on it? Um, that did not work. Uh, two days a week did not work. Um, you know, I was still covering a beat in the newsroom. I could not control when news was going to happen. So I would try to, like, Friday's the day, Friday's podcast day, I'm ready. And then, like, someone sends us a press release, and then that's it, right? And moreover, with a project of this size, it's, you can't just, like, pick it up and pick up right where you left off. It takes, you know, half a day to just get, like, reacquainted with all the tape and where was I last time, you know, when, two weeks ago when I last had a chance to work on this. So it was painstakingly slow for a long time. Finally, uh, in the, about the summer of, of 2018, uh, we decided to really go for it. And uh, I was put on this story full time and stayed that way for about five months, which was a beautiful gift. Uh, I also got another great gift, which was a collaborator, senior producer Taylor Quimby. And for the first time, someone else was like listening to my tape, which was like a huge moment because like for two years, I had been just sitting with all this stuff and didn't know... Uh, if it, any of it was good, and so to have like another mind uh, to like bounce ideas off of was great. And anyway, so in a lot of ways, this is when the real work of Bear Brook began. I, I think maybe two thirds to seventy-five percent of the reporting had been done by this point in the summer of twenty eighteen, but none of the really none of the writing production had had happened yet. And so, uh, what I want to talk about really is is what happened over those five months and the lessons that I had to learn or more accurately, the mistakes I made over those five months to, to go from the old way I made radio to the new way I had to learn how to make this podcast. Uh, so basically, this is just kind of a grab bag of things, uh, mistakes I made and things I learned from them. Some are small, some are larger. Uh, I will start with how I had to structure this thing. Going into it, I knew that it was going to be different. I knew. It, I couldn't think about it structurally the same way I would like a news feature, but I didn't know exactly like what that would mean on like a tactical level. And uh, but I want to tell you about uh, a kind of early uh, realization I had, which is kind of embarrassing in retrospect. But um, you know, in the spirit of vulnerability, I will share it with you. Uh, and to illustrate this, I want to play another spot I did. This one's not as bad, I promise. This one's from earlier this year, and it's just previewing an upcoming press conference about the case. That's all you need to know. The mystery dates back to 1985, when the remains of two victims were found inside a barrel just outside Bear Brook State Park. Two more bodies were found in the year 2000. So that's it. The, if you've listened to the podcast, 
the fact that there is a second set of victims discovered 15 years later at the same site as the first set of victims is like a really big moment. It happens about 30 minutes in at the end of the first episode. It's kind of the cliffhanger ending of episode one. It's maybe what kept you listening for the whole series, I hope. And I just want to point out that here, it's literally the second thing I say. It happens in the first six seconds, right? And as it should in this context, in a news spot, because it is one of the most important, I mean, it's just like a basic, how many victims were there? There were two, then there were two more that were found later. Those are like the most important details, so I say them first. But realizing that I didn't have to do that in the podcast was like a huge, like, oh, I don't have to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Exciting, right? Also terrifying, because if you can start moving stuff around and, and withholding information for later, where does it end, right? How, you can just do that endlessly. So we had to figure out how to structure the thing, and the way we did that was through a storyboarding process, which was basically me in a room full of uh, other uh, reporters, producers, and a couple of editors, and I just kind of talked out the whole podcast as I saw it, and we um, went through uh, scene by scene, episode by episode, uh, deciding like, okay, where does this episode start and end? What is the, what's the kind of arc for this episode, and, and relative to the larger arc for the whole series? Uh, also like, who is telling this part of the story? Who are the sources for this scene? Do we have enough sources in that scene? Do we, is this a spot where we need more reporting? Uh, I found this really helpful just in terms of seeing what you have and seeing what you need uh, in, in terms of reporting that I hadn't done yet at that point. You know, like, oh, can we really have, like, just one source, like, carrying this whole episode for us? Like, probably not. We need to find other ways of telling this, this part of the story. Um, so we did this. It took us a couple hours, probably more like three or four hours. Uh, and we pretty much sketched out to the end of episode six, and you can see it, it starts to thin out near the end because I didn't exactly know uh, where, where the reporting was going, but I knew, like, okay, we're going to end with the vigil scene at the very, very end. Uh, I had that part. Uh, but I left this, at, from this stage of the process, feeling great, like, okay, we got the structure now. I'm like, all I got to do is, like, make it now. I just got to write that. Like, it's already there. The story's already done. It was really hard uh, to write for long form. Uh, and again, this was something I knew would be different, but I wasn't sure how. And if you've ever had, just had that feeling where you're working on something and you just know it's bad, but you, you can't tell why, that was my life for like two months trying to write the first episode. Just like, it does not sound right. I don't, I don't, know, what it, I don't know what it is. Um, in retrospect, it was a lot of things, but one of them that I want to talk about is uh, just a basic thing about how I was writing in and out of tape, because that is, uh, it's a subtle thing, but it's actually really dramatically different from the way you write into tape in a NPR news style feature and the way you write into tape in a podcast. So here's uh, just a bit of a script for a feature I, I recently filed uh, for NPR, and basically all I want to point out is, I don't know if everyone can read it, but there's a lot of um, so-and-so says 
Dr. Enrique Ingaireno said it was with the American College of Emergency Physicians. He says this, he says that. The relationship between the writing and the tape is really explicit. Like, I'm always pointing to it. I'm always saying, here's a guy, he says this. You know, here's a guy, he says that, right? Um, by way of contrast, and I'll play this, this is just an excerpt from episode seven of Bear Brook, so hopefully I learned some things by this point. Up on the screen were some of the same photos that I'd seen in Becky's living room in October. A blurry yearbook photo of Marlise smiling at the camera. Little Sarah, just a baby, sleeping in someone's arms. The oldest Allenstown child victim has been identified as her oldest daughter. And here she is, Marie Elizabeth Vaughn. This is Sarah Lynn McWaters. Her life photo is on the left and her facial reconstruction is on the right. For so long, police were only able to call them by their age. The adult victim, the middle child. But now these, baby pictures and birthday photos. So there's a lot of things different, obviously. The tone, there's scoring underneath it. But just the relationship between the tape and the writing is very different. I'm not saying... Again, here's senior assistant attorney general so-and-so saying this thing. The, the tape is happening sort of alongside in a more parallel fashion. It's a little hard to put your finger on, but it's the best I can come up with is this sense of it's a less explicit relationship that happens. The tape and the writing are happening in a parallel fashion, more equal to each other, and less like this, 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 which is what happens often in, in uh, writing for, for news features. So just a smaller thing that I uh, feel like I had to learn. Um, signposting for long form, showing that structure. So again, coming out of that uh, storyboard, I felt great. We had this like perfect, beautiful, symmetrical structure, you know, this beautiful like clockwork story uh, line that we had built. Uh, but what I had to learn was that the listener doesn't, doesn't have the outline. They don't know that. They don't feel that unless you show it to them. So I had to figure out ways to, uh, you know, show the mechanics in places to to help uh, listeners know where they are to orient themselves. Right? Again, this is kind of, I think, basic for people who've been doing long form. But there's just one thing I want to say about, uh, or lesson I learned about signposting, which has really stuck with me, and that was during a group edit that we were having, uh, which I'll talk about a bit later, but. It was, we were editing this episode where I launch into this like 20 minute, exp I have my moment with the isotopes. I have my this like 20 minute explainer about isotopes. And I'm like so excited to tell you all these like factoids about how like the leaded gasoline that we used for decades is like it's in all our bones now and we can use it to identify it. It's just like awesome. But it's kind of a weird move for a true crime podcast to make. Uh, and so in the first draft of, of that episode, I didn't really acknowledge it. I just kind of like went, and now we're talking about uh, isotopes for 20 minutes. And the feedback from the first group that it was like, whoa, you got to like warn us or just like give us a heads up or like tell us what's going on here. You know, give us a sense of the structure of the story that we're beginning a new thing and Tell us, you know, give us a sense of where this is going and how it's going to connect back, right? So I went back. I wrote a new uh, setup for that uh, section of the story. And it was something like, okay, we're going to pause the murder mystery now. And we're going to tell you about isotopes. Because 
it's important to the case, but it's, and it's kind of boring, but just like, it's science, I know, but bear with me, we'll get back to the murder mystery, right? But I got back the next group edit, and uh, one of the people in the group edit, who happens to be the, uh, happens to be a environmental science reporter at the station, took issue with my uh, <laughs> setup, and he said something like, don't apologize for the science, Jason. Uh, if you're gonna put this 20-minute thing about isotopes in your podcast, like, make the case for it. Like, tell me why you're gonna do it. Uh, don't ask the listener for a favor to, like, sit through, you know, like, that is the least enticing thing, right? Like, this is gonna be bad, but just hang on. <laughs> Which is basically what I was doing, right? So now I, I think about this as, like, signposting with confidence. If you just, like, make an argument for why you're going to have this section in there. Do it in an affirmative way, and it's less of a, I mean, you'll just feel better, first of all, and it's, it's less of a crutch going into that section. So here's how we ultimately uh, write into that isotope section. And before we get into this, I just want to point out how important forensic science has been to the Bear Brook case. In the absence of witnesses or missing persons reports, the only information that detectives have been able to glean about the victims, what they look like and where they might be from, has come by way of pushing the boundaries of forensic science. Whether that's cutting-edge facial reconstruction or using a high-tech chemical analysis of the atoms from within the victim's remains. Okay, isotopes. Isotopes are atoms with either too few or too many neutrons. So you still get the sense like, okay, we're about to start something big here, but here's why, and here's why that's cool, and here's why that's, you should come along with the ride. There's no like, sorry, but we have to do this, you know, eat your vegetables kind of stuff. And so anyways, that's just one thing I really have tried to absorb from this process. And I've tried to bring this back with me to my reporting in uh, more traditional news context and any time I come up against like some really complicated, wonky policy topic, um, I'm just trying to remember, like, don't apologize, Jason. Be confidence, confidence. Okay, so another big thing I had to think about was how to, how to deal with characters in long form. And this one I really tried to anticipate because I, I, I knew this was going to be a really a big challenge for me because, again, coming from a a news background, news radio background, you just don't have a lot of time for characters in your news features, right? Like you have maybe one sentence that tells me their name and like what organization they're with. And like maybe if you're lucky, you get a, uh, some other colorful detail about them. But because of that, I really did not have any vocabulary, any language for describing characters vividly in any kind of um, three-dimensional sense. So I knew I had this problem. I tried to get ahead of it. And so I started reading fiction again for the first time in a long time, which I don't know if maybe other reporters will uh, relate to. It feels hard to read fiction sometimes. Uh, and so I became a big fan of John Le Carre. Spy Who Came In From The Cold, total classic, would recommend. Um, anyways, I would, I, read, I would read these fantastic spy thrillers and, and would just get to sections like this where there's a little bit of a character description or even like a scene or setting description and I would just read them over and over a few times just trying to pick up a little like okay here's a little move here's some language here's and you know just trying like through osmosis to like 
um, absorb this stuff, you know, and it's and it and especially when something is happening in like really few words, because I knew I couldn't write like I can't do that sentence. I think that's all like well, there's some really long sentences in here. Anyways, I can't do all of this in a radio piece, obviously, but I wanted to like you know find the like concentrated moments of description that I could try to emulate, and so something like you know, making an arc of her body, like a bow strung towards the sea. Like, oh, maybe some language like that. I could, like, her body is like a bow, like a simple image, a shape like that could be helpful and, like, quick enough to do in, in a radio script. Uh, and so here's, here's kind of how that um, filtered in to, to Bear Brook. Here's what I came, came out the other end. The victim's faces are rendered in grayscale, and they look a little computer-generated but certainly a lot more lifelike than the simple sketches that once hung on the refrigerator at the Morgan's home in Allenstown. I'd like to go through each one in particular. Agade clicked through the slides of these new images one by one. Our first one is our adult victim. She's a female, likely to be within her mid-twenties. The adult victim's hair looks almost wet, like it was still drying from a shower. Our first child victim also found in the same barrel with her. Her age is closer to 9 to 10 years old. The oldest child victim has a few freckles on her nose. Uh, she was approximately 4 feet, 3 inches tall, had light brown, dirty blonde hair. Her mouth is slightly parted, like her photo was taken while she was lost in thought. Um, we do not know what her weight was specifically, and we do not know her eye color. Child victim number two. The middle child's expression reads almost as surprise like someone just called out her name. She, her age is anywhere between two to four years old. Her hair is darker than the others. Her eyes set a little further apart. So, I mean, I'm no John Le Carre, but you could see like how you need some more language than you can normally use in, the, in a news context. And so this was one way that I found to, you know, borrowing from other uh, medium, from other genre to, to do that. Um, Another uh, issue I uh, contended with in terms of characters in long form was, was how to nail the character introduction. Because as I learned, it's just so, so important because you, you really get one chance to introduce your character and then so much of what happens later, their tape, the moments that happen with them later in the story really hinge on like how effectively did you introduce that character. And, um, that for this, I, it's actually um, it's very fitting that I'm here because it was a year ago that I, I was at Third Coast for the first time, and we were just re we were just releasing the very first episodes of Bear Brook, but I was still writing some of the later episodes, and uh, I came to a talk by Hannah Jaffe Walt, and maybe he'd been in this room, who knows? Uh, and she was talking about things. Uh, the theme of the talk was like stealing tricks from other people and she was talking about how she stole this trick from Nancy Updike where um, uh, uh, having to do with character introductions and setting up listeners to hear a certain tape in the, in the way a character talks and she plays this great uh, excerpt from uh, This American Life episode called 24 Hours at the Golden Apple and I think it's obvious what's happening here but it's just worth listening to. Every morning I'm here between 4.30 and 5.00. I love the Golden Apple. They're wonderful people. They got good food. And uh, that's it. This is how Joe Molica ends every sentence. And uh, that's it. Or sometimes... And that's all I could tell you. Joe's not used to talking about himself. His story comes out bit by bit. 
Our entire conversation takes place in a different era. He's completely unselfconscious about calling me honey. He bangs on his coffee cup with his spoon to get the waitress's attention for a refill. Please don't try this at home. But he gets away with it. I do construction, remodeling, rehab. And that's what I do. I retired. I'm 78 years old. And I gave the business to my two sons. And that's it. How did you start that business? To my dad. My dad done the same thing when I was, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years old. I started working for him. He was paying me a dime an hour. And that was it. Clean up, sweep up the floors that he's working on. What else you want to know, honey? I mean, it's just it's so smart because it's that's exactly the kind of tape you would easily cut out of your feature story. You know, you're trying to you're trying to chop up. I think often the impulse is to clean up the tape and and make people quicker and try to just move things along. But you can see what if she points at it, she tells you to listen for it, and then every time you hear it, it's like it, it builds up steam and the momentum grows and the meaning in that phrase becomes more powerful, right? So um, I was here at Thrift Coast, I heard that talk, and I was like, oh, I have a, I'm going to steal this, right? Hannah stole from Nancy, I stole from Hannah. And I got back, and, and we, we wrote this um, intro to one of the most important characters in, in Bear Brook. Roxanne found a couple of lawn chairs for us. She set them up in an empty room that looked out over her new swimming pool. Outside, a soft rain was falling. Roxanne and I ended up spending about two and a half hours in those lawn chairs. She's a good storyteller. And I also noticed that she has this verbal quirk. So it's just, it was just, it was pretty goofy. It's almost like a catchphrase, something a TV cop might have. But then there's this other goofy story. It's doing goofy things. Whenever something doesn't quite add up, or she gets a gut feeling about a person or a place, she calls it goofy. Some stories are goofier than others, and... Uh... Um, I get the impression it's a sort of coping mechanism, a view of the world she's had to adopt after working so many years in homicide. You know, either talk to your colleagues, you find ways of trying to deal with it, you talk to your spouse, and uh, some gallows humor and some funny looks from people at parties of things that you think are funny as hell that other people don't think are very funny at all. And... Um, um, and goofy stories, and you know, and you just try to take care of yourself. All right, so that's my ripoff uh, version of that technique. It's a great way to introduce her. It gives you a real sense of who she is uh, uh, and and her character. But then it also has a huge bearing on. You get a really big payoff later in the episode where Roxanne, this detective, is is coming across this incredibly grisly crime scene. And, and here's, how, here's how she describes it. There was some shop kind of tools and equipment there, reciprocating saw. There was a, uh, a small, like a, not a hatchet small, but like a small ax, like a child's ax, like a smaller ax leaned up there. Um, there was some bottles of like um, some green, substance like spray bottles so it was goofy right so without the setup when she says goofy in that context it would be like just the wrong word and would be like 
totally inappropriate sounding and would like rip the listener out of that moment and we probably just would have like cut it out. But because we have the setup, you, you make the investment in the character and, and that word in particular and by the time then you get to this moment with the crime scene when she says goofy, it's now imbued with all this extra meaning and to me becomes really the highlight of that scene. It's, it's not necessarily like the discovery or these really like grisly details that she's pointing out for us, but it's like when she says goofy in that scene, it, you know what it means now. You, it, you know who it's coming from and all the extra connotations around it. And um, to me, that's, that what's, that's what really makes that scene work for me. Um, and I stole it. I stole the idea. But uh, I, do, I want to do another character introduction that we do in Bear Root because it's kind of a cheat to just talk about Roxanne because it was so easy because like she said goofy every three seconds and so it was like a really obvious thing to like focus on and use in that way. It was a great detail to latch on to. Um, but I want to give an example of when it was a little harder. So here's, um, I want to play you some raw tape of an interview I did with another detective. His name is Peter Headley. And uh, what you need to know is that Pete and I had had many phone calls, pre-interviews, before the interview, we had like hour-long phone conversations where he was like really chummy with me and we, you know, we just talked about like a lot of stuff, not just the case and we got along great. And then I got him in the studio and then this happens. It, it uh, strikes me that it, that it would be a kind of a particular type of policing. Is there anything that, um, you know, beyond the obvious that you're dealing with, with children that, that makes it a different type of police work? It can be very difficult. What do you mean? Um, okay, take out all the hemming and hawing. Uh, how do I put that in words? Just seeing the effects on victims can be, it's tough. Is that something that you have gotten better at over the years, kind of developing a, a, a thicker hide, so to speak? I wouldn't call it a thicker hide. It's, it's, Well, you're, you, I hadn't even thought of this. You're, you're going in directions I wasn't expecting. <clears throat> well, is it, you know, just, it's just helpful to get a little bit about you. you know, so, uh, kind of a tough interview. Uh, and and even, <laughs> I, even the, the guy who did the tape sync for me, afterwards when he was, like, emailing me the link to where to download the tape, he was like, tough interview, huh? <laughs> so... You know, when it's, you know it's bad when the tape sinker is telling you it's bad. Um, so I was pretty worried about this because uh, Pete has to like carry a really big section of the story. Like he's the only source we had on tape for uh, big chunks of, of the episodes. And there's like not a lot to work with there in terms of like a character introduction. Like he doesn't have a snappy catchphrase, right? Um, but then later uh, I was having another conversation with him on background you know, we weren't recording. He's back to being his chummy old self, and I was, like, a little mad at him for that. Uh, and it just, like, comes up that he has, like, he's just gotten out of the hospital uh, because he, like, he hurt his leg uh, while he was skydiving. And I was like, oh, was that, 
that's interesting. Was that like your first time skydiving? And he's like, no, it's, I, I, I skydive more than 300 times. It's, um, it's like my, it's what I do. It's my hobby. And I can remember literally like fist pumping in the air when he told me that on the phone, because I knew like that was, that's the detail I needed. That's the something to grab onto, to use, to introduce him as a character, particularly because there's this great, like stark contrast that I could lean into between like, here's this guy, like, you know, detective, like, well, actually, I'm gonna, I'm, this is how we wrote it, and I'm doing it already. So here's how it ends up in the episode. If they hadn't been there at that particular time, said the right things, she would not be here today. Headley works in the Crimes Against Children detail at the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department. It's a line of work that he sums up in his characteristically terse way. It can be very difficult. What do you mean? Uh... How do I put that in words? Just seeing the effects on victims can be, it's tough. Detective Headley's understated style strikes me as being at odds with the rest of his life, which involves chasing criminals and his favorite hobby, skydiving. And I should say that Detective Headley would eventually come to So it's a subtle thing. It's not much, but it's, it helps introduce him. I think it helps make him more memorable a bit, okay, like the skydiving detective who's like really monotone, got it, right? It's a, it's a detail to latch on to, to, to remember. And we do get some payoffs with this character later from this introduction where there are moments where he's been like uh, tracking down this lead for like six months and then it like falls apart and I'm like, geez, that must have been really hard, Pete. And he was like, yeah. And so like, you know, like you have a setup even for that moment. So even the bad tape can be kind of, I mean, it's not great. Like, it doesn't fix everything. It doesn't make all his tape sizzle. But it helps, it really helps just uh, set up who he is, what the tape, where the tape is coming from, and uh, makes him a lot more memorable, I hope. So one last thing about characters uh, in long form, which was uh, a particularly difficult lesson for me to learn, was, was how to introduce myself as a character in the story or show myself as a character in the story. I really resisted this. Uh, Taylor can uh, attest to. Um, you know, it's just not something that you generally do in a, in a four-minute news feature, certainly not in a uh, newscast. Um, but I was, you know, ultimately convinced of the, the idea that if I'm going to ask a listener to spend this much time with me, they need to know some things, like where does my interest in this story, in this case, come from? Uh, why am I the person best positioned to be telling this story? I think particularly that question you really do need to answer. And in the course of that, uh, sort of show a bit about yourself, show a bit about the work you've been doing on it. Uh, and so for this, uh, I went to a really obvious place to steal from. And here is, um, here's just the beginning of the first season of Serial. For the last year, I've spent every working day trying to figure out where a high school kid was for an hour after school one day in 1999. Or if you want to get technical about it, and apparently I do, where a high school kid was for 21 minutes after school one day in 1999. This search sometimes feels undignified on my part. I've had to ask about teenagers' sex lives, where, how often, with whom, about notes they passed in class, about their drug habits, their relationships with their parents... And I'm not a detective or a private investigator. I'm not even a crime reporter. But yes, every day this year, I've tried to figure out the alibi of a 17-year-old boy. 
What I like so much about this character introduction of Sarah introducing herself is that she's not just doing that. She's doing two things at once. She is uh, setting up the questions for the podcast. She's kind of raising the stakes. She's teasing you with some information about what's to come. But she's just showing she's showing a bit of her work along the way, that she's been asking these questions, that she's been feeling undignified. Right? She's just showing a bit of her. I, I think of it as like the camera frame is still like on the story, but you can kind of see her hands working on it. And that's enough, right? You have a, a, a big uh, pitfall, I think, with doing this sort of thing is overdoing it. And you really want to have a light touch and on like having introducing your host as like, uh, you know, more important than he or she actually is. But this just struck me as a really good way to do it. Just kind of not focus on you necessarily, but your work on it, if that makes sense. And that tells a lot about like um, the context for which under which this podcast is happening, where the reporting got started, why, the, why you're the best person to do it, where your interest came from. And so um, Sarah Koenig is not a crime reporter. And then so I came back and I wrote this because I'm also not one. I am not a crime reporter, or I wasn't until I discovered this story. I first learned about the Bear Brook murders in late 2015 when I was assigned to cover a press conference about the case. I'd only been living in New Hampshire for about six months. I didn't know anything about the case. At the time, I was more concerned with covering the New Hampshire presidential primary. The week before, I was being crushed by a throng of other reporters while trying to follow Hillary Clinton down a hallway. Aside from the primary, New Hampshire is pretty quiet. There isn't the same urgency to news that there is in some other places. It's the sort of state where a rogue bear can and has dominated a news cycle. So when I learned that in 1985, bodies were discovered only 20 minutes or so from the NHPR newsroom, and that police still hadn't identified them 30 years later, it stuck with me. How is that possible with all of the DNA testing and modern forensic techniques? How could they not even know who the victims are? After that news conference, I filed a short story for the newsroom and went back to my usual beat. But I never forgot about the Bear Brook case. It became a kind of side project, something to look into when I wasn't sitting at a town hall meeting or covering the state legislature. Right, so I'm trying to do the same thing there, doing two things at once. I'm raising the questions, like, how could they not have identified these people? But that's also truly my question going into it, right? So I'm telling something about me, something about the story something about how I created it that tells you that I'm not, um, you know, I wasn't like a true crime junkie, which sort of influences how you're going to hear the story. You know, you know, I'm, I'm ripping off that same move and trying to do it for, for Bear Brook, and, and hopefully it worked, and I would suggest stealing it from me. So enough of me stealing from other people. Um, another thing I had to deal with was how to voice for a podcast, for long-form stories, uh, and this was another thing that was difficult for me because, you know, we all get into habits and, and uh, how we sound in our radio stories, and particularly coming from a traditional news, you know, public radio newsroom, you start to sound a certain way. Um, I was going to need more, uh, more than that. I needed more than that sound because there's a greater range of emotions and moments, and th there's a greater dynamic range happening in, uh, in a long-form podcast, right? So here is, um, here is senior producer Taylor Quimby 
helping me to learn that lesson in a kind of Mr. Miyagi sort of way um, in a very early tracking session we were doing for, for the podcast. This is kind of a highlight reel. It was a game, basically hide and seek, except the seeker rode around on a four-wheeler, which has to be the most New Hampshire way to play hide and seek, which has to be the most New Hampshire way to play hide and seek, which has got to be the most New Hampshire way to play hide and seek. It was a game. It was a game. It was a game. Try that whole thing at like double speed. Like don't don't make any pauses between like just spit out the whole it's it's a game and then like basically it's blah, 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 blah. Okay. It was a game. Basically hide and seek, except the seeker rode around on a four wheeler, which has gotta be the most New Hampshire way to play hide and seek. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. It felt good. Um as as difficult as that was and painful as that was for me, I sort of later realized what Taylor was doing, uh, which was basically just to kind of like shake me and push me in any direction that he could that was out of my normal kind of groove that I always sort of reverted to just so that I could start to explore like a different type of, you know, a different way of doing it, a different feeling um, so that I could start to explore and push the boundaries and and not a lot, not as much, you know, he's trying to push me 50% further here so that ultimately I would do it 10% more in the end, right? And maybe I only sort of increased my dynamic, my emotional range by a couple degrees on either side, but you, you need those uh, other couple degrees for the, the kinds of moments that happen in a long-form story that don't necessarily happen in a news story. Um, and another, another uh, piece of advice that I remember... Taylor giving me in that tracking session, which has really stuck with me too, is that um, not not every section of your tracking in a in a forty five minutes story needs to really sparkle. Like you know, there are some moments where you it's you know it, you're reaching this great moment and your and your writing is really great, and so you want to make every word count and and you know the words are almost precious you're doing it in the tracking and you're like giving it all you've got but there are other moments where that's not the case where you you're just getting you know you're setting a scene or describing someone or doing some exposition to get you from point a to point b and so you need uh you need a range there as well in terms of not just pacing but also you know emphasis it's almost it's almost you know musical in that you, you could use you know you need some pianissimo moments, you know, or uh, yeah, whatever it may be. Um, but you can't do it all, all at the same time, right? You can't have every moment be like the best moment in your tracking. And I still, I still try to think about that. Okay, so I want to shift now to talking about how we edited the podcast and the structure around that because that was also incredibly different for me and was incredibly important to the success of the story. Uh, so before this, I was working in a traditional setup in a newsroom where I would go and report and write the story myself and then bring it to an editor, and the editor and I would do the edit, and maybe we would do it again, and maybe a third time, and that was it. It was sort of that one-to-one. -one. This was very collaborative, uh, group-based editing that we did. Um, and here is the basic process. I would write, track, and mix an audio draft of the episode, and then Taylor and I would do an initial first edit, sort of very uh, big structural edit, not 
Taylor like fixing all my bad writing, not yet. Then I would take that, make the changes, mix a second draft, and then we would go to a group generally at that point. We did group edits that were probably a little too big. <laughs> I would not recommend this many people. Um, and basically each person would get the audio draft, the, the mix, they would listen independently on their own, in their car or whatever, and then make comments on one shared Google Doc. And then we would all meet in this room, and then they would all tell me what they didn't like, uh, one after the other. Um, and what was most important to the success of these was the role that Taylor played. And he was really the air traffic controller of this, because uh, as you can imagine, with this many people in the room, you know, creative reporters, producers, there are like a lot of ideas, a lot of suggestions for how to fix my broken podcast. And Taylor's role was essential in providing some structure around that and some rigor and in deciding we are not going to talk about every single comment. We're going to focus on areas where there was a lot of comments, a lot of disagreement or agreement that it was bad, but not a clear way of how to fix it, right? We'll focus in on those big sections and not go line by line through the whole thing because that would take like a week, right, with everyone's comments. So we would have this meeting, and then also, very importantly, Taylor and I would then have a debrief immediately following the group edit where we would talk about the discussion, come up with, um, and basically make some decisions based on the feedback of like, okay, we're gonna take this idea that we got that seemed to be unanimous in the room. This idea seemed to be uh, clear, clearly agreed upon. Other areas where there was disagreement, we just made decisions, right? We just, you know what? Three people said they didn't like this, but we're just gonna ignore that because it, you know the other people didn't feel strongly about it and we feel like it's good. We're just gonna go ahead with that. And so we would come, I would come out of that debrief with a clear set of like, okay, here's what we're actually gonna do from that uh, kind of big mess of like ideas and stuff getting thrown against the wall, getting out of there with like a clear checklist of things I needed to do and fix and change and address was, was a really important part of the process. Uh, so then I would write and track, rewrite and track. Taylor would start taking over the mixing and then we'd send it to the group again and we would rinse and repeat. And I think the fewest drafts we did for an episode was like four and the most we'd, we did was like eight, I think, eight or nine maybe. Uh, and then once we felt like we had like worn down the group with the group edits and were ready to go on to final edits, we would we would do that with two editors um, who had been in the group edits most times, and they would do, you know, line edits, final things, usually very small things, and then uh, Taylor would mix the thing, and we would send it out to send it out to the world. Um, so this was the process we by which we learned to make Bear Broke, and this is how we made the first six episodes, and it was. It was great and very different from how I had worked on any other project before, and we learned all these new things. And then this cool thing happened where we had to um, combine the kind of uh, old world I was in with this new world, um, because we learned through some reporting that, that there was a, a new tip in the case. After we had released the first six episodes, we learned there was a new tip that had uh, likely identified three of these victims who had been unidentified for like 35 years. Um, but it hadn't been confirmed by 
by law enforcement yet, and you know we had no way of independently confirming it ourselves, so we were forced to wait until there was yet another press conference about the case, but we knew it was coming, right? And we knew we wanted to have an episode that day for you, but we also wanted it to sound like and be as produced and, and um, ornate as the first six episodes, right? We didn't want to sacrifice that in this process. So we um, planned the hell out of it. We um, pre-produced the first half of that episode. We went through this process. We did like seven versions of the first half of the episode. And then we tried to, to uh, uh, anticipate all the things we would need to do for the second half, You know, covering the press conference, getting back, doing the other interviews we needed, turning it around. The goal was in 24 hours to do that by. And we did it, and it would not have been possible if we had not, I don't think, unless we had gone through this process with the first six episodes, and I had kind of learned all these things about characters and writing into the tape and, and the lessons I was stealing from other shows and all this stuff, and um, we were able to get the episode out by, by four in the morning, and it was a, it was a great moment because for the station because it, it showed that, okay, we, we can make news for the radio, we can make these long-form podcasts and spend you know, weeks and weeks uh, on these episodes, but we can also do it on deadline when we need to, when we have to. And we put out a you know, 35 or whatever minute episode you know, within like 12 hours of that press conference. And it was a big um, affirmation of, of the idea that we could do this again in the future and, and so we, now we're trying. We're working now on a podcast about the New Hampshire primary where a lot of the stuff that happens is a bit more timely. It's a bit more, you know, there's an election going on, right? So a lot of the episodes have to be quicker turns. And I don't think we'd be doing this or we'd even be trying to do this had we not learned a lot of these lessons from, from Bear Brook. Uh, and so those are a few of the things I learned. Hopefully you've learned a few things from that. And I'd be happy to take questions at this point. So uh, you had your great outline, and you were super psyched. You had your roadmap. How much did it change from then to the final product? Did you actually keep any of the turns or structure? Actually, it changed very little. Um, it, we, it more or less stayed intact. I mean, you can see that it gets a little bit um, fuzzy near the end because we didn't know, like, there's this big blank spot. I'm like, something's happening here. Um, but by and large, the, like, the beginnings and, and ends of each episode stayed. And, and we, I mean, we had the luxury of the majority of the, the story took place, you know, in the 80s, in the early aughts. So, like, a lot of the, the facts were known, were public, most of them were. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't too kind of, shifting in our hands. We had, this, we had this story known pretty well in advance, so that helped us. It, we weren't like uncovering new, uh, too much new information as we were going. And what we did uncover that was new, we were e able to easily just kind of plug it into these different episodes. But um, yeah, we, we stuck pretty much to it, and that was really helpful. Uh, you know, getting into that writing stage of it, you know, uh, knowing that, okay, I don't have to address this, you know, I, I have 
in one episode, we explain what genetic genealogy is, but we save all of the, the controversy and debate about it for the next episode. And so, you know, knowing that before I started writing the genetic genealogy explainer episode was like hugely important because, you know, I, the, otherwise the, I would have wrote that section entirely differently. So it was, it was incredibly helpful to, to have this and, and to stick to it, yeah. Thank you so much for this. It's so helpful. I have uh, two reporters who are basically going through the same oh, process. I'm that, sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, so feel for them. Uh, I have so many questions, and uh, because we are on, we're a little further behind, but on the same learning curve. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things you haven't talked about is music, and yeah, that's yeah. something that's definitely we don't do day to day in mm -hmm. our our mm -hmm. radio features. Um, so could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So. Uh, I had a uh, my experience with the music in Bear Brook may not translate, so because I ended up creating a lot of the original music for the show, uh, and basically that was born out of uh, a frustration. I was I was trying to get the first draft to Taylor, and I was like clicking through all these MP3s, and I was like, no, 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 and then it would be like three hours later, and and I just felt like I got to get something in there that feels uh, more correct. And I had I have a bit of a musical background, and I thought, well, if I just plug a few like chords in under this and get it to Taylor, and then he can fix it once he gets it. Uh, and and then uh, we didn't, and so that was kind of the beginning of creating original music for the podcast. And then after that, you know, I went back and like wrote more stuff and worked on it more earnestly. But what I would say about uh, using music in in especially podcasts from local stations is I think it's really important and awesome to have original music. Um, in it because that just reinforces to me like one of the greatest strengths of podcasts from smaller stations is the kind of it's coming from somewhere sense of it you know it's it's not just like I don't you know coming from the default place that all podcasts seem to come from right uh, so we've done this on other podcasts is just working with local musicians um, uh, and for the Stranglehold podcast I worked on that music again with a local another local musician we recorded in his home studio the station spent like 1500 bucks on studio time and we got five pieces out of it and and i think that's kind of like a good critical mass of original music for a series of like six to eight or ten episodes like we still use blue dot sessions i think in every single episode but just having enough original music that you can use throughout and if you, and having the stems you can really kind of stretch it and and rearrange and re-compose, uh, re in some cases, the piece in different iterations throughout, you can really like get a little to go a long way. So I would go for it. Original music is, is what I would, yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much for this. Um, it sounds like you learned a ton. Um, and thanks so much for sharing so much of it as well. Um, among the things that you did learn, though, looking back on it, what uh, of them, which one of them probably would have made the biggest difference had you known that? Maybe not for, you know, dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, but just if you had done that thing or known this concept or this principle, that would have carried you halfway there or, hmm. you know, a good long way the way. That is, which is the more important, most, some of the most important ones. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I think, I think, uh, something about the writing process the really like getting down to the to the granular detail and I don't I but I don't know if I could have like been 
taught that. Like, I feel like I had to just kind of like beat my head against the wall and like try to write this thing and have it sound bad over and over again until I could figure it out. But, you know, by the time we were doing episode five, six, and seven, I remember feeling like, oh, it, this is so much easier to write now. Like, I've got, like, feel the rhythm. I can, I'm getting a hang of the, like, the moves and it's how it's different from what I used to do. So that, like, learning that skill uh, was what sped up the production of later episodes most significantly, I would say, just that kind of um, getting a good first draft out. Hi. Um, I have kind of like two questions that I'm going to make very brief. So the first one, um, I am like a NPR affiliate reporter. And hearing your stories, I, I kept hearing like it strikes me as or seems <laughs> like. <laughs> and... I can't even fathom a world where I'm allowed to write that into yeah. a script. So how was how how hard was it for you to break the mold of what you had been trained to do? So that's one. And two, um, from what I if I remember correctly, it was like two years before your your station started giving you more resources or giving allotting you more time. So how did you hold on to that? You know, being a small station and kind of like not just letting it go. How did yeah. you keep keep hope alive? Yeah. So in terms of like breaking out of the mold, like the bigger barrier, luckily for me, was not my editors, but me sort of feeling like I need to operate in this like pre-constructed archetype for what I do, because if I break out of that, like I'll be bad. And so that was more of like a personal issue. My editors were cool with like they they were up for, um, you know, changing things. And, and we had some experience with some other podcasts doing long form. So there was like an openness and willingness to explore that space at the station, which was really helpful. Um, keeping hope alive. Uh, I remember one of the most motivating things was uh, was me for me was thinking about the sources and particularly after, you know, interviewing some of, um, you know, some of the victim's family members uh, and and feeling like so um, uh, gracious, you know, so they had, that they had shared this um, story with me that they had like opened up and talked about this incredibly painful thing with me. I thought like, if I don't finish this, like, then that will have been for nothing and that was like a really terrifying thought. And so the idea of disappointing uh, some of those people by not finishing it, you know, like not in terms of necessarily like the way this, how the story went, um, but more just like, oh, I guess he gave up on that. Uh, that, that thought of them thinking that was incredibly motivating for me. Um, hi. Uh, you kind of answered the question a, a little bit, but I'd still um, would love to hear a little bit more. And I should say, having listened to the whole show, I don't think this was a problem with it. But so much of like true crime podcasting, especially not coming out of public media today, feels a little bit um, like voyeuristic. And I wondered how you and your team, if you and your team, but again, I, I don't think it, it, you didn't have this problem. I should make clear. I, I think it's great work. But um, like, how did you and your team think about ways to be respectful and to treat the story with the serious seriousness that it requires and not make it just be like some bodies in a yeah, barrel. Yeah, like, oh. yeah. That was on my mind. Uh, the whole, like uh, it was a huge concern of mine. And in fact, for a long time, I didn't, I really resisted like referring to this as a true crime story. And I was working on it, which is like insane in retrospect. Like it's obviously a true crime story, but I, but I didn't like the connotations of that word for the reasons you're, you're pointing out. I'm trying to think of one concrete way that that, that uh, manifested was when we found out that 
the the person responsible for the the murders was this serial killer. Um, I thought about this very issue, and I thought I I wanted to be careful about like not making this into a podcast about the serial killer and and sort of you know tracing his arc, and uh, you know we just tried to make. I mean, obviously, we have to talk about him in a lot of different contexts, but we we just tried to make him like a, a character that appeared as sort of a crossing line with with um, the story arc of our of our victims, and and just focusing on on their stories whenever we could, and 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 getting interviews like you know from from their families was one of the really important things to me to, and that's what I told them when I when I would make. Uh, uh, you know what were difficult asks of of them to talk about this was that I you know I wanted to I wanted to show your and I want to show Unsun as as a human and and not just a victim I want people to know about her pottery studio you know I wanted I want people to know about that and care about her um, so yeah it was just like a it uh, something that nagged at me the whole time that I was afraid of uh, making those same mistakes and so. Yeah, I just had that fear following me, and I guess um, that kept me from doing bad things, I hope. Um, hi. Um, I, I feel like I'm in the position that you were in. We oh. just got um, approval from our station to work on something we've been working cool. on for a long time, full time. My reporting partner was actually in here and was like, you got to go. He's, he's doing what we're doing. Oh. Um, I am curious, I saw that scene of the group edit with a million people in it, mm -hmm, and this mm -hmm. whole sort of talk is about how you guys learned to do this as you were doing it. And I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about, like, did you ever feel territorial about your work or, like, the feelings of, I imagine not everyone in this room, you know, had spent as much time working on this and also maybe didn't know what they were doing in terms yeah. of, of producing a podcast. So mm -hmm. that's question one. Okay. And number two is if there was a most crucial person, it seems like you had a very um, good relationship with your producer. Um, if there was a most crucial person outside of your reporting to like have be super professional and great, could, yeah. who would that be? I can add, the second question is, is definitely Taylor, without, without a doubt. He was really important because he, he was this really... Uh, great link between me and the editorial process um, because he was closer to the story. He was the only other person that listened to my tape, had a good handle on what was a really complicated story, um, but he wasn't doing the reporting. And so we had that some distance, but not as much distance. And he was the kind of person who I could come to like right after an interview and bounce ideas off of and be like, oh, this would be a great way to start episode six. And he's like, nah, I don't like it. Uh, but I but I trusted him because he had listened to this stuff, and so that I think that relationship was by far the most important. Um, the first question in terms of taking feedback from other, I mean, definitely a lot of bad ideas happened in this room. Um, I mean, we had a whole debate about the phrase "viewless hills." People were like, "What's a viewless hill?" And we're like, "It's in the word. There's no view." So like, <laughs> we wasted some time on issues like that, um, but. Where that, where we could kind of filter that stuff out was right in that debrief right after with Taylor, where like, okay, we're gonna ignore the whole thing about Viewless Hills, like obviously, we're like, right, right, right. And so there was some strategic, you know, sort of ignoring of feedback in these situations that you had to do, uh, and and but just knowing that that's what the group edit is for is not necessarily like 
to make them all like editors per se, but it's, it's almost more like a focus testing group where like, hey, like, you know, who was bored during this section? You know, and if four hands go up, you're like, okay, we got a problem. Or who thought this joke was funny? Or, you know, that sort of thing. And so just knowing like what you can get out of them and what, what not to expect from them, I guess, is a good thing to know before you start. Hi. Uh, oh, wow, this Hello. is very on. Um, my question goes back to what you were saying at the very, about how you started the piece and how you kind of positioned yourself, um, which I remember thinking this when I first listened to Bear Brook. It's not, you know, Sarah Koenig did it, Madeline Barron did something similar, moved to a new place, get obsessed with the cold case. Mm -hmm. um, but my question has to do with sort of early conversations that you and Taylor and whichever editors had about who this podcast was for. Um, I'm another person who works at a local public radio station, and I think that decision of we're going to demonstrate one sort of outsider's obsession with this thing, despite the fact that I think there's probably a lot of people at your station who are like, we've already heard of this case. Our mm -hmm. audience is tired of hearing about hmm. this case. I'm curious as to like what that conversation hmm. sounded like and how you guys made that decision. It, uh, we really didn't. Um there wasn't too much hand-wringing about that. For one, we hadn't really reported on the case uh, as a station. Uh, you know, as is true of a lot of like public radio stations, we don't do a lot of crime reporting. So that wasn't an issue for us. And then in terms of whether it was gonna be for a local or national audience, um, I think from the very beginning, we, we knew it would be for a national audience, or we wanted it to be for a national audience. And uh, I think that's just largely because we had models to look at, uh, you know, in the dark, serial, and so many others to, to replicate. It's also what made it really terrifying to do, because we knew we were sort of in the shadows of, of these um, enormously successful and, you know, brilliantly reported podcasts. But I think that was always the goal, was to try to do, was to tell a story for the, you know, for the same people who listen to those, uh, in a sense. I mean, we didn't think of it that explicitly, but it was kind of the same vein we were heading down. So congratulations on the project, and Thank it's you. been a little while, but quite an endeavor. Um, just a logistics question. You showed that great picture of you guys, or no, great, depending on whose perspective, of four in the morning finishing yeah, yeah. finishing the, uh, the episode. And it aired at, I think you said, like six. Uh, uh, well, some, yeah, maybe like five or six. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. So you, it was that, you said that was like a 35-minute episode? I think so. Yeah. So in what, this is a logistics question, like in what day part, like where did you run that? Like, did you just take over part of an hour? And oh, we, did, we didn't, we haven't aired any of it. It's all, all just been on the podcast feed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so none of it is aired on the station. Wow. No. That's interesting. Yep. So you didn't air, like you didn't excerpt anything or do anything like that? No, we did like some two ways in morning edition saying like, Hey, remember that reporter, Jason Moon, who you haven't heard on air in five months? Well, here's what he's been working on. <laughs> And we like promote it in our broadcasts, you know, but uh, this may be of interest, but I, I will say that uh, the, our on-air promos are broad, trying to like get our broadcast audience to listen to a podcast, uh, to my knowledge, has not worked. It was not really successful running on-air promos for a podcast. So take that for what it's worth. I want to go back to these group editing yeah. sessions. Um, so how did you, and this is kind of piggybacking on, how did you, did you have a sense always that your story was moving forward after each of these, or did you ever get mired? Was there anything, 
Was there any sort of back and forth, like, oh, put this scene in, no, take it out, no, put it back in? And if so, how did you hang on to your sanity and your patience <laughs> during that process? Because that's, that's a lot to go through. Yeah. There, well, there was a couple of, of scenes that were kind of like, are we going to keep this, are we not? There's a whole... Uh, other uh, murder that happened the same weekend that they found the first victims in the Bear Brook case. And it's it's sort of related in the fact that it, it stretched the resources of state police, and that's maybe part of the reason why they didn't find the second barrel. But it's also, it feels like it's a little bit of a tangent. Maybe we could cut it out. And um, I think um, early on, we're like, we're probably going to lose this. But, you know, we, we ended up keeping it in. And... Um, you know, I by the end, like, I kind of forgot what got cut and what went in sometimes, you know, because there were so many versions. And uh, so I don't I don't know that I did keep my sanity through that process. I was just, I mean, once we got going, it was just a matter of necessity of just, like, getting these things out. And, and um, particularly once people started listening and we saw that there was an audience for it, you know, the pressure increased. And... Um, yeah, we just took those as as they came and had good long discussions about it, and that was it was great to have a team and and collaborators to have those discussions with. But yeah, hi. Uh, so I'm also a reporter from a member station, and I'm just curious. You know, after going like deep diving into long form and narrative journalism and going back to the four thirty seven yeah. minute format, yeah. uh, have you changed anything? Have you found a way to incorporate some of the things you learned into the new style? Yeah, we and and I have, and also the station has in some ways. So we've brought the group editing over into our news features, not to the same extent or level. So the group edits are like three people, maybe four people, uh, and and we'll just do we'll do, you know three people will sit for a read, you know, uh, and that's been really helpful actually. I think that's made our news features a lot better. Um, in terms of my work, you know, it it can be it can be hard. I thought initially that I was going to like bring all these ideas back and then I was like man I don't have time for that in this story um, but I try to be more thoughtful about uh, like introducing characters in my format I still look for a little detail to hang them on you know the skydiving thing I look for that in, in those four minute features can't always do it but um, I, I strive I speak for everyone in the room when I say we want to hear more about isotopes yeah. <laughs> um, in context we make a half hour public television show about science and we're spawning an audio podcast of that. We have a whole half hour coming up on a brilliant researcher who got a pile of money from the Justice Department to make new isotopic forensic tools ooh, ooh. to identify border crossers at the US-Mexico border. TV side, ooh. no problem. Graphics, Photoshop, yeah, yeah. protons, neutrons, picture swirly swirly. How on earth <laughs> did you paint that picture for the listener in a way that they got it? Yeah, I, um, I'm glad you brought that up because I thought those, I worked the hardest on those sections, on the explaining isotopes and explaining genetic genealogy. And um, I can remember like writing whole drafts and just like throwing them out wholesale and starting over on those, on those sections to just really try to nail it. And one of the things I did was um, I would try to, I would use my script and try to explain it um, to people outside of the station that, uh, like, a, my friend, you know, um, on the weekend, I'd be like, you know anything about isotopes? And they'd be like, what? And I'd be like, okay, hang on. And then I would just, like, 
try to go through the beats, you know? Here's what an ad, like atom is and, and the neutrons, and I'm wondering, like, do I need to tell them about the neutrons or not? Like, that's a detail that may be an accessory that can go, maybe not. Uh, but I would go through the bullet points of how I wanted to try to explain it to them, and then I'd be like, do you understand it? And they'd be like, hmm, not really. And so I would try to just use, um, you know, people, uh, innocent bystanders as, um, as uh, guinea pigs, I guess, and trying to, to really hone those explanations down. But it was just trial and error. It was just trial and error. Uh, first of all, huge um, respect for the work you did Thank you. and what you accomplished. As a former station reporter, I'm just curious how you managed the or thought about the politics of being able to take time off of working on something like this when the rest of the newsroom was still, mm. <laughs> you know, saying, I really need that extra minute. No, you don't have it. And you have like five months to work on, yeah. you know, this long form yeah. stuff um, yeah. and producer resources. And um, how, did you feel guilty about it? And how, how also did your newsroom manage it or kick in to replace you while you were gone? Or I'm just, yeah. just yeah. wondering about that. I did feel guilty about it. Like a lot of the topics on my beat uh, fell to other people. We, we did try to kind of backfill for me. So we had, I mentioned that I started at, at NHPR as a, on this fellowship that we have. And afterwards I got hired on full time. And so they were hiring a new fellow and they sort of designed that fellowship to backfill me for those five months that I was going to be on this. Or we didn't know it was going to be five months, but for however long I was going to be on this. So that was one way we tried to shift resources around to fill a gap. But, yeah, it was hard to, like, I would see the emails come in about, you know, the governor saying this about, you know, this education funding uh, bill that I was really steeped in and that I would normally be the one to write about. And then, you know, we would cover it in some other way and, you know, maybe it wasn't as good as it could have been or, you know. So I did, I did feel that tension. One thing that helped was, was um, uh, being more intentional about removing myself from the newsroom. So I stopped going to the morning news meeting, which was tough as well. And I was just kind of like off in my own little world for, for several months. Um, this, this continues to be an issue that we struggle with at the station, being a, a small shop. Um, it always feels like we're kind of cannibalizing to work on projects like these, particularly, I mean, you know, not even just me, but like all these reporters, we like should have been in the newsroom, um, but they're coming to my group edit, right? So we haven't quite figured out the balance yet, and it'd be great to just hire more people, of course, um, but that's also a challenge. So, um, we're, yeah, I don't have a good answer for that because we're still figuring out how to do that, but it, it was an issue, and we did we did try to navigate it as best we could for a small station. So, uh, hi. Hello. Um, I was wondering if this is a big outlay of resources for a small station. Was there anything that came out of it that this, that benefited the station aside from maybe notoriety? Um, what, what was in it for the station, I guess? Um, well, you know, beyond sort of being a test case for future projects like this, that was one thing we got out of it. Like, okay, we can we can do this, uh, you know, if conditions are right, that sort of thing. You know, we were able to raise some money through, uh, you know, just soliciting listener donations through the through the podcast. I'm not as steeped in like um, the business model of this and how much we actually spent making it to know if we broke even. I suspect we didn't, um, but I could be wrong. Um, so. 
Yeah, I think I think the biggest things that the station got out of it are um, more ephemeral. The sort of prestige, the notoriety, the fact that you know it's it's helped us to get more listeners to other podcasts that we've subsequently made. Those, those sorts of things. So, you know, hopefully it's an investment that will build upon itself, and you know, one day we'll we'll say it was worth it. I hope. Okay, so my question is about. Um you were sitting on so many interviews over such a long period of time. How did you file all that tape? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that question. I, uh, I logged it like back when I did the interviews, but then like sometimes it was so long before the next interview that I forgot. Like I logged it, and then I went back and looked at my notes, and I was like, what? So uh, once we got to like, the beginning of that five months where Taylor came on board and I started working on it full-time, I actually went back and re-logged several of the interviews, which was like... Uh, kind of demoralizing, but also good because that's meant we were really working on it. So um, I didn't have a good system for 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 keeping it all in order. We we now use like a, a automatic transcription service, um, but I've actually never worked with transcriptions. I've always worked by logging and making notes on the tape, and so because of that system I had for myself, um, you know, the more time goes on, the the less sense your notes makes, and so I just had to redo some of the work, which was unfortunate, but necessary. Well, thank you, everyone. Hi. Uh, thank you for that. That was so helpful. Oh, good. How did you convince your station to let yeah. you go full-time? <laughs> um, it, uh, that's a good question. I, it wasn't really me, to be honest. I didn't really like barge into like the CEO's office one day and say, like, "Damn it, we're making this podcast." It was more of like a shared like realization that we learned over the course of like when I first started on this. You know, I had been I had been at the station for five months, so like no one was eager to let me do a podcast. Um, by the time there was this other information about the case, it had been a couple years, and the fact that like me working on it on the side was not working was like well known. So I didn't have to convince anybody of that. Then we tried the one day a week, the two day a week that also like plainly failed. So I think it was just a matter of like, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to do it this way. Otherwise it's not going to happen. And it was also, um, I think the other factor was that it was, it was draining on, it was pulling me away from my normal duties. So it, it sort of incentivized, uh, my editors, other people at the station, to be like, okay, let's just get this thing off his plate so we can like not worry about it anymore. So um, it was a years-long uh, lesson that we all learned together. Is, is probably the best way to put it. Thank you. I had a question about your group editing process. Yeah. And did you, um, ha had you ever done anything like that as a group before? Did, were there any kind of rules of engagement that you came to? And did you have specific questions that you asked people to comment on, or there were just anything goes? Yeah, uh, I had not uh, uh, in, been involved in a group edit before. I believe at this station we had sort of dabbled in it. Um, but. We got, we got some good kind of rules of the road from Ben Calhoun during his station visit. And um, th that included um, having some questions for people ahead of time. But often those questions were as general as like, when are you bored? When are you confused? And just, you know, very kind of top line stuff like that. Because at its, to me, at its best, the group edits were 
also like um, they were like focus, they were like testing, you know, focus group testing. Or like, was that funny? Who like thought it was funny? And like, if you didn't get half the room, they're like, all right, we're cutting that joke. Um, so it was it was helpful to have uh, more people in the room for that for that purpose. But I think the most important rule of the road was that one person was in charge. Again, I can't like overstate how important that was. That someone could say, all right, we're moving on. We're not going to talk about that comment. We're not you like. You may have like written this opus in the Google Doc, uh, like comment pane, but we're not going to like get into it right now because we don't have time. So um, it's nice to have that kind of flat structure of of editorial feedback coming from everybody, but you have to like balance that with some some guardrails. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Yeah. This has been amazing. Um, I'm curious uh, because doing something like this where you have characters who. Um, are so invested in the project and um, who in s some cases may have sort of exposed themselves to you more than what you were accustomed to. Mm -hmm. Did you have a different process around sort of prepping them or what was coming? In terms of like, this is gonna be a big podcast and get ready? Well, yeah, or were people say like, I don't know, they're not, they're not exactly like super vulnerable sources. Mm -hmm. um, like I have one that involves mental illness and mm. you know, so it's sort of, uh, but yeah, did you, how much did you tell them about even just the structure of what was coming out? Or like, yeah, you're mm, a huge part mm -hmm. of this, or what did you share? Uh, some. I told them, you know, that it was going to be a, uh, an episodic series, although I think some of my sources, like, over that two and a half, three year period were like, I guess that thing's never coming out. Um, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, probably not. Um, but, uh, not in greater detail beyond that. Like, uh, you know, I would tell people, I think, like, you're really important. Like, you're going to be in a couple episodes. Like, um, you know, hope you like it. Right. But, you know, in terms of, of the impact once you released it, you know, I, I, I kind of thought no one was going to listen to it. So I didn't, like, tell them, like, get ready for everyone to hear your voice. Right. Because um, I didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah, got it. Yeah, hi. Thank hi. you for an interesting yeah. presentation. Um, I, I think the short question is that how did you keep your uh, secrets safe? And what I mean by that is that, that um, uh, well, I must, admit, I, I must admit that I haven't listened to Verbruch That's yet. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, so that, uh, but um, you made your own investigations and, and, and had your own findings about the case and with, with, with the people you inter interviewed. There must have been things that, that you were like a, a very uh, like a anti anticipating to, to tell to the audience and, and make, make kind of a revelations of these, these findings. Uh, the whole process was quite a long one. You were like uh, simmering all the stuff that yes. you had. So, uh, was there some some um, like uh, details that the source would have liked to gone public earlier, or, or so, something like that, that that you had to kind of a hold back because the process went for quite a long time? Uh, we we did have uh, one issue with that, but it wasn't it wasn't because our editorial process was too long. It, it was because we we knew some information about who the identities, who the victims were. Um, but as from a reporting standpoint, we just couldn't confirm it. Like, so I talked to this amateur investigator who had found these names on an online forum. She had kind of connected the dots, connected to the, talked to the family, learned additional details that like really seemed like it was them. But as a public radio, like we couldn't go out and like DNA test the remains and like be absolutely sure. And we were not going to risk being wrong about that sort of thing. 
and also it wasn't like a big um, there's no big public benefit to like naming the victims before police do right it's not harming people that that they don't know this information so uh, in that sense we we waited for like six months to report on that information because we were waiting for law enforcement to confirm it through through forensic testing and and some other it, it did kind of leak out in some other outlets during that period and that was a little frustrating and difficult but we we always we had known that we weren't gonna you know pull the trigger on that until it was officially confirmed so uh, luckily for the other episode the earlier episodes a lot of the stuff was already public record was already out there it was you know more backward looking so we had that luxury of taking time on those edits all right thank you hi um curious about the uh the producer taylor i think yeah. his name was mm-hmm. Um, what was, could you talk a little bit more about his involvement? Was he helping you in the, um, reporting stage too? Like, were you guys working together during that stage or were you pretty much out there on your own collecting stuff, deciding who to interview, um, kind of following your nose or was he involved in that too? And then was there any other staff from the station, um, at part of the team, like on an ongoing basis? Yeah. So, uh, as far as reporting goes, it was basically just me uh, during the reporting. Um, Taylor did have some ideas for additional scenes that we kind of added in to the podcast. So like I get my DNA tested and put it on 23andMe and that was his idea to kind of create it, create new scenes for it. Um, but mostly Taylor was helpful as that first kind of sounding board. Like he was the only other person that listened to my tape, which was like a huge relief after like two and a half years of like carrying all this stuff around and and like finally like someone else knew what I was talking about it was really fun um other people we had we had two editors who were involved throughout in in every edit throughout the process uh and they would do the final final edits on on each episode before it went out um but in terms of that uh that reporter producer relationship it was it was a pretty bright line between that in terms of I was out doing the interviews, contacting sources, doing the reporting. I would come back to him and think, oh, this is like, this is how we're going to start episode six. And he'd be like, I don't think so. And so like that was, that was incredibly helpful. But so he, to have that kind of um, middle distance where he was listening to the tape, he was really familiar with the story, but he wasn't talking to the sources, but he also wasn't the final editor. It was really helpful to be able to kind of bounce ideas and, and, and think up ways to do episodes that wasn't super high stakes where it wasn't like my the final editor on the piece you know was where it was more like i'm pitching it to them you know so, so like the first he heard your tape was at that when you started the five month yes full time okay. yes yes um so. it seems like the storyboarding process was a, a pretty important step and i'm curious how much reporting had you done before that and how much did that inform your reporting and yeah. you can talk a little bit about that balance yeah i i'd say we were probably like 60 to 70 percent through and you can actually see that in the storyboard because you can see it, it starts to thin out as we get to episode six over there we're like i don't know and then we're gonna i knew we were gonna end with this vigil scene that's what that says down there so you can kind of re- see that reflected in the in the actual storyboard so for the other 40%, it definitely did uh, influence, like, could, because one uh, benefit of this process is you see, like, where your reporting is a little thin, where, like, oh, I only have, like, one person who knows the details of all the events in episode three. Like, I really need to find someone else, because I don't want to 
rest this on the backs of one of one character. So I need to find more sources there. Or, or you know, the idea is I think the idea of of uh, some of these scenes that we invented later, where like I get my DNA tested, or we or we go out in the woods and and see what the distance actually looked like between the two barrels. That stuff come out of came out of conversations like these, where you're like, okay, we got to talk about this fact that it took them 15 years to find this second set of victims that was only 300 feet away, but we don't really have any sources to talk about that. Like, you know, the, the law enforcement isn't really eager to get into that with us for obvious reasons. So, like, how do we how do we dwell on that topic without any characters to do it? And so, and so we came up with this idea to to do it ourselves, but. That's the kind of thing that you, I think, it's easier to see that, to see the holes and that you need to, like, beef up in your story when you do this process. And do you, do you have kind of a, like, a, a pre-reporting storyboarding, like, separate from this earlier in the process, or is... I think that would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> we would have, maybe. Uh, and, and for uh, other projects that we've done since then, like Stranglehold and Patient Zero, we have done that, that process. And that, that has been helpful. Uh, where in those situations, it's maybe 10 or 20% of the reporting is done, and, and it's a good roadmap going forward. So I don't think there's ever a bad time to do this, certainly. Thanks. Yeah. And I'd love to expand on this, too, because it looks like you did this at the beginning, but then you wrote and edited each episode one by one, or yes. did you try to write them all kind of together and go, actually, maybe the scene is better here. We need a question at the end of this episode that mm -hmm. will then set up something we're getting to later on? Did you go back and kind of rewrite pieces as you went along? No, we pretty much stuck to the, the storyboard, which was incredibly helpful just to know that, like, this is what we need to cover in this episode. And, we, you know, if there's another idea that maybe it fits in here, maybe it doesn't, that I'm not worried about that while I'm writing the script, that we figure that out before. Um, I think is was hugely important. And, and so set up, like, we need to introduce this person here even though they're not going to actually really figure into the story for two more yeah. episodes yeah. or something like that. Yeah, questions like that, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, everyone.